by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, why not do evil uh, that may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. No, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have, come, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their, in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it keeps to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of God. Good to come and meet and to hear from God's word. If you are here for the very first time, my name is Reggie. A warm welcome to you. We're glad that you've decided to join us here today. Uh, we are continuing a series we started a while ago today. I'll tell you about it in just a short while. Now, some of you here... Uh, probably know um, Humozo and Kensani, uh, officially known as G and Shares. Yes, you can do that woo again. So yesterday we had their wedding. Go, oh, come on. Yeah. So yesterday we had their uh, we had their wedding. Uh, a few of us here from the church went to support them, uh, and for me it was a great privilege to watch them. Uh, uh, from just being a dating couple to a point where I stood in front of them and declaring them as husband and wife. It's an exciting moment. Uh, so just keep them in your prayers as, uh, as, you, as you think about um, just life for the rest of the week. But uh, I did mention just now that we are, we're going back to a series we were doing. I hope the tagline is actually just behind me. Okay, I see it is. Uh, the series is A New Humanity. Uh, it's a series that David started not too long ago in Romans, which is a great series actually so far. Romans is a good book. It's a book that teaches us about this new humanity that God is gathering for himself. I'll quote the, uh, the quotes that David used in his series just a little bit later in the sermon. But let me just say a few things about Romans so that we have our bearings in the book before we come to God's word. Romans is like, I'm sure you're wondering why that is there. Those who've heard me teach on Romans would have heard me say, Romans is a bit like Jenga. For those who can't see who are joining us online, we have a Jenga uh, puzzle, or what do you call this thing? It is a puzzle, right? Uh, right in front of us. 
And, and the thing about Romans that makes it like Jenga is that Romans teaches you about a number of things. It teaches you about a number of things about the gospel that Paul is, is telling us about. This gospel, if you study at the beginning of the book, is a gospel about the risen and long-promised king. That's what you see. And when you read verse 16 and 17 of the very same chapter, and actually read chapter 3, verse 21 onwards, you see that this is a gospel that tells us how we are made right with God. It's good news of how we are made right with God. Chapter 5, verse 1 is the gospel that is uh, good news that tells us about our peace with God. Chapter 8 is the gospel that tells us about adoption and how God wants to make us like his true son, Jesus. And then from chapter 12 onwards is the gospel about how we are empowered to love God and love neighbor. And Paul's concern in this church is that they would love God and love neighbor, especially in being a united people. This church in Rome is a church that is fractured. And as Paul tells them of his gospel, he wants them to know that this is a gospel of harmony, a gospel that has brought them together with God, and they are meant to live in the same way. So I would say Paul's gospel is actually not chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 6. It's not chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 4 as well. It's the whole book. He's telling you about his gospel, his good news of what God has come to do. Now, what people are often tempted to do when they play Jenga is they pull out one part, sometimes hastily, and then mess up the whole thing. I think with Romans, we can tend to do the same. You pull out one thing and you say, this gospel is simply about maybe adoption, and you mess up the whole thing. But if we realize it's about these different things and we put it back on the Jenga piece, we see what this gospel is about, a whole gospel, which is what Paul wants us to learn about. Now, I've said Paul wants this church to know this because they're a fractured church. They're a church who has real issues. They're real people. And so as he speaks to them, a few times I will point out to us, it seems like he's speaking to these people now. It seems like he's speaking to these people now. And this is how this gospel actually applies to them. And this is how it applies to us. But now, I must say, the summary statement that David gave is a brilliant summary statement. I know he won't like me saying this because he will think Reggie is giving me a big head, which most of you will already say he has, he has one. But this is the statement that David used. It's a brilliant statement that sums up all, all that I've just said now. And the statement will show up just behind me. And this is what Romans is about. In Romans, we see how God is gathering a new humanity to himself under Jesus as king, empowered by the spirits to be agents of change in this broken world as they await the renewal and the restoration of their bodies and of this world. This is what Paul wants us to learn in Romans. This is the good news that God has brought to us. Now let me pray for us so that we would come to see this good news today. And what we will see today particularly from this chapter is that you and I need this gospel. We need this gospel. Let me pray. Our Father, we pray as we come to your word and that you would show us how we are not good. That you show us how we are unrighteous. You show us how we are tempted to live life for ourselves and not to live as you have called us. And Lord, this is true of everyone. So we pray today you would show us our need for your gospel, a glorious gospel that saves us from a life of chaos, a life of ruin that we have chosen 
and that saves us from the judgment and that you give to those who choose such a life. Pray that you would make us see, as we sang earlier, that we need this gospel. We need the blood of the Lamb, and we should be thankful for it. And this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Are humans good and somehow learn how to be bad or evil? Or are we evil and need to be taught how to be good? Now think about this for a moment. See, whenever this conversation about good and evil has come up, it's a conversation that people have had for generations. And whenever it comes up, people immediately think about persons in history particularly who are the embodiment of these two phrases, good and evil. And so perhaps even as I asked that question, you thought of people in history who are the embodiment of this very phrase. Or perhaps you've not thought of people in history, but you thought of people in your own life that you think are embodiment of either of these two phrases. Or maybe what you thought about is a spectrum, a spectrum between good and evil, a spectrum where various people would fit in, people who are good and people who are evil, and people who are somewhat in the middle. Now, let's say such a spectrum did exist. Let's say it existed. Where would you put these people? Now, I'm not going to mention any people in history because I think that's quite obvious, It will be very easy for us to think, where would you put Hitler? Where would you put Nelson Mandela? Where would you put these kind of people? Where would you put Beas Nodia? These different people in history, where would you put them? It will be easy for us to do this. So let me bring it a little bit closer to home for us to think about. Where would you put these people? I'll tell you a few about professions and a few about um, just people's characters. Again, where would you put these people? Starting with profession. Where would you put an engineer? Where would you put an accountant? Where would you put an IT specialist? Where would you put a lawyer? Uh, If you're thinking evil, probably there. Where would you put a social worker or a pastor in that whole spectrum? Where would you put, I mean, we're talking about profession and work now. Where, Where would you put your boss or your lecturer? And I know bosses or employers are a hot topic during a dinner table or even a prize. So where would you put your boss or your lecturer? Now, my, my boss is here in the room, um, and most of you know him. I think he is somewhere, oh, sorry, I think he's somewhere this side. <laughs> somewhere this side, right? Where would you put a racist, a tribalist, a sexist, a homophobe? Where would you put the adulterer? A sexually immoral person, the tax evader, a liar, or a gossiper. I hope you're thinking about that. Where would you put the churchgoer, the humanitarian, the philanthropist, or the person who gives to charity or gives to the beggar by the road? Where would you put the neighbor who plays loud music during work days, when you're meant to be working or studying? Where would you put... People who've hurt you in your life, whether it's friends or family, could be people in the church. Where would you put them? 
Where would you put, if you are married, please don't raise your hand up, your in-laws? Where would you put your kids? And lastly, where would you be on that spectrum? See, this is a trending conversation, a trending topic that people have had. Recently, there's a show that came out, this is around 2016, on Net Geo with, uh, with Morgan Freeman. And this is a, a show that traces the story of God. It's a docuseries. Um, now, Megan Freeman is often thought as, of the guy as be, who's being, who is the voice of God um, because of how his voice sounds. I mean, you can't imagine God sounding like Kevin Hart, right? You can't. <laughs> But he's often thought of as being that guy. So he seemed like the obvious person to take to figure out what God is like. But what the show also interrogates is actually how do humanity uh, relate to God? Now, the show does not just look at the Christian God, but they look at God from all kinds of religions. So uh, it's not really an endorsement from this pulpit for you to go and watch it, but I think it was a good show. And in one of the episodes, actually, they asked this very question. Is humanity intrinsically evil? Oh, good. And they went to people, various people or experts, and they got answers which lean on both ways. But what was intriguing to me as I was watching the show is this. No one ever stopped to ask, how is it that a creature who seemingly recognizes what is good struggles to live in such a way? How is it that a creature who knows or has been taught to live good, struggles to live in this way. Why is that? Could it be that you and I, as humanity, have an overestimated or inflated view of ourselves? We think we're good. Could it be that? Well, I think so. And Paul, in this passage, will show us that. That we have an inflated or overestimated view of ourselves. And I do not think this is just people outside of the church. I think this is people in the church as well. In the church, you find too many people who consider their relationship with God, who look at whether they are good in relation to others. I'm not like them, so I'm not that bad. They think about good and evil in relation with others, and that is where the problem is. That is exactly where the problem is. We think of good and evil in relation to others instead of God. And so Paul, once again in Romans will show us that those who are part of God's new humanity, because we are the new humanity, do not think of the gospel in this way. Rather, they realize their need for the gospel because they realize they're not good. And here's the thing. Even after God has brought them into his family and he has redeemed them, they still act in a manner that shows their old nature. And so we can read this and think Paul is talking about uh, perhaps humanity in general, or he's talking about this church's previous life before God saved them. But in one sense, as Paul talks to them, he wants them to see that this, this is actually still part of your life. You still act in this way, and you need the gospel, not just to be saved, but you need the gospel to live for God, to live as this new humanity. You and I need the gospel. And so today as we come to this passage, we will see exactly that. We need this gospel of a reason king, this gospel that tells us of how we are made right with God, a gospel of peace, a gospel of our adoption, and how God will make us like his son, and a gospel that empowers us to love others and to love God. And in this church, the people are struggling to do that. So as we go to the passage, I have three points for us. The very first one is false confidence, which will be from verse 1 to verse 8. Our second point is Flat ground, 
which will be from verse 9 to verse 20. Our last point is faithfulness. I'll pick up that idea from what is said before and after this passage. And our third point, let me just let you know, will we'll be a step up for next week. So we won't spend as much time on it. So three points. False, confident, false confidence, rather, flat ground, and faithfulness. So let's go to the passage. And we will read together. Once again, I'll read verse 1 to 8 uh, if you uh, will follow with me. Listen to what Paul says. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what, what value? Or, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their uh, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true. Though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Speak in a human way. By no means. For then... How could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? Now, in this very first point called false confidence, what I want you to see, what Paul will show these Jews whom he has written to, uh, so Phoebe would have stood in front of them and read this letter. And as she read this letter, this is what he, he would have wanted them to see. See, Paul here argues that the Jews were content with the privilege of being God's people. Without the responsibility of actually living like God's people. They were content with the privilege of being God's people. Without the responsibility of actually living like his people as this new humanity. And what Paul has done so far in Romans, just to bring you up to speed, is he has put everyone on the same boat. What he has said is God has actually revealed himself. And the ways that God has revealed himself or made himself known, he has made himself known in, in creation. He has made himself known in people's consciences. And God has made himself known through his word. And he has made himself known in this way to different people. And so at one level, every person has a witness of God, has an understanding of who God is from either one or two or all three of this, either from creation or creation in their conscience or creation in their conscience and God's word. And you could actually say of the Jews that they had all three. But what we have seen from Romans so far is everyone, despite of how God has revealed himself, has decided to suppress God's knowledge. They've decided to live their own way. And in one sense, if you go back to chapter 1, a little bit earlier, verse 1 to verse 6, they've decided to become their own kings. Instead of living in allegiance to the king, the true king, Jesus, they've decided to live their own way. So everyone has decided to suppress the knowledge of God. And so if you have been following the argument with us in the last few weeks, this is what Paul is saying of all humanity in short. All y'all the same. All y'all the same. In the words of a modern philosopher, 
who put up something on Twitter. I'm not going to quote what he said a little bit earlier because it's not the kind of language he used on the pulpit. But the last part of it, which has been tra- trademarked, is this. Nonge. You are the same. You are all the same. You're not different. You are the same. All you are the same. All of humanity is like this. And now Paul, being a Jew, was aware that the Jewish people would raise some objections to this. They've raised objections to him, comparing them to everyone else. How could you compare us to everyone else? And so in one sense, as you come to this chapter, what he does is he actually raises the objections himself, the objections that they would bring up. He raises them, and then he answers them. It's as though Paul can imagine the Jewish person, as Phoebe is reading, reading this letter, saying, hey, hold up, honorable member, honorable member, honorable apostle, sit down, sit down. Let me raise a point of privilege. I don't know if you guys remember who said that in Parliament. Let me raise a point of privilege. And there I think you should insert a way to justify myself so that I could show you that I'm not like the others. A way to justify myself to show you that I'm different and set apart. You can't be comparing us to the Gentiles. Surely, Paul. And here are the objections that the people bring up. There are two in this passage that we'll look at. And I'll give the objections to you in question forms. And then we'll read um, some of the verses again. These are the two objections that come up between verse 1 and verse 8. The first objection is this. This is the objection he imagines them saying, Paul, are you saying our heritage? The fact that we are the children of Abraham. And that we have God's word. We've got the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Are you saying this is worthless? Are you saying this is invalid? Paul, what about the customs that we are taught about in this Hebrew Bible? Invalid? Surely, Paul, these are not the things that you are saying. Surely, Paul, you know that these are the things that mark us out or set us apart as those who belong to God's family. Surely, Paul, you are not saying that that we are like the rest. That's the first objection. The second objection that they bring up from verse 5 to verse 8 is one where they don't just argue about their heritage and God's word. He imagines that, but it's one now that relates to God and his justice, or whether God is just. So Paul imagines them saying, Paul, have you considered what this means about God and his faithfulness? Surely if God is faithful... Our failures will not invalidate his promises to bless us. This will actually prove without a doubt that God is faithful, that God is right. Surely, Paul, you realize that. So two things, two objections that they bring up. One on God's justice and his righteousness, which is the second one. And the first one is on their Jewish heritage and the fact that they have the scriptures that set them out as the people who know God. Now notice how Paul answers them. I want you to see this. And these two things almost relate to each other as Paul answers them. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to bulldoze this false confidence or false identity they've built up. He wants to bulldoze it so that they themselves would realize their need for God. So that they would see the scriptures they read were pointing them to their need for God. That even the marks that they had that show them that they're part of God's family were marks to show them that they need God. They need God. That's what Paul does. So as we read through the passage, this is what Paul is saying to them. No, I am not saying there isn't great value. 
in having God's word, let's read it, look at it. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. You notice that? He says, of course there is value. Of course there is value in these things. If you've heard me preach, you've heard me say this. Obvious. Lunch bar. Lunch bar. Obvious. Obvious. There is great value in these things. But they are of no benefit to you. If you live like someone who rejects God's word, or if you live like someone who does not actually have the mark of belonging in God's family, it is of no value to you. The word of God is of no value to you if, you if you don't live as it calls you to. And this mark that you have is of no value to you if you do not actually live as someone who is part of God's new humanity. Another illustration you've probably heard from me, it's like people who have a virgin active card. I think Molina and a few people who heard me preach at the student camp would have heard me say this. People who have a Virgin Active card. I'm a card-carrying member of Virgin Active. Look at this. Look at this. I belong to Virgin Active. I belong to that family. I belong there. And I pay them because I, be- I believe in their mission. But they don't go to gym. What does that say? You're a card-carrying member of a family that you don't really follow in what their vision is. So you have the card, but it's no use to you. It's of no benefit to you. You're a card-carrying member, but not living like one. Now, again, I'm not trying to make a few people feel guilty about going back to gym. I mean, look at me. (laughs) Come on now. But that's what Paul is trying to get them to see. You're card-carrying members. You're card-carrying members. You're not living as though you are the people of God. And so the problem is not with the word of God. It's never been. The problem is not with the customs. The problem is not with circumcision. In the New Testament, the sign that is there is baptism. See, as a Christian, you can be baptized, which shows that you are, uh, it's a mark that you belong to God's family. But if you do not live like someone who actually embodies that mark, what benefit is it to you? Read God's word, carry it around. Reading God's word is a great thing. But if you don't live like it, what benefit is it to you? Paul says here, you understand that you've been set apart, but you actually don't live like it. See, you, you like the idea or the privilege of belonging to God's family without the responsibility of living as such. And in the next point, Paul, the next objection, Paul says, with the next one, I think you've missed the point. See, your unrighteousness neither deters or elevates God's faithfulness. It neither does that. Just like the sun will rise up tomorrow, whether you decide to want its warmth or you don't. It will rise up. It's a constant. I know some scientists have fought about this, but hey, it's a constant. The sun will rise up, whether you want its warmth or not. or not. See, unrighteousness will not deter the faithfulness of God. See, God will remain true to his word. He will remain true to his word in this sense. He will bless those who accept his promises in Abraham. And those who decide they don't need his promises... They don't need to be part of his family. He's going to let them be. That's what Romans 1 is about. He's going to let them be. And that's judgment. That's the picture you get here. That the Jewish people in the Old Testament lived as though they don't want to be part of God's family. They liked the privilege without responsibility. And God let them be. And God has proved just when he saves, just as he's proved just when he judges. Which is, which is a hard message. It's a hard message. It's a wonderful message. That God has proved just when he saves. It's a hard message to hear. That he's proved just 
when he judges. It's hard because you and I at one point were these people or probably are or have family that are there. It's a hard message. But God is never proven as unrighteous when he judges. So Paul wants them to see. So he warns them against being card-carrying members of God's family. And so if I may ask with us, are we like that? Are we card-carrying members of God's family? I mean, you come to church. You're content with the privilege of having God's word, which, you, which is what we have, which is great. You read it in your devotion. Spend some time in a life group. Again, consider joining a life group in our church. Either speak to Rafa, as Jared has said, or Black, which Jared will show you. Join one of those. But perhaps you're part of that group. Or you hear the, the word of God taught here on Sunday. But man, you still live like a card-carrying member. That word has actually not done any work in your heart. What benefit is it to you? See, Paul wants to show the Jews who probably would have raised some objections. As he has said in chapter 2 from verse 18 onwards, you're actually like everyone else. You don't want to live as God calls you to. And so you need the gospel. You need the gospel. First point, which was by far the longest. Our second point is flat ground. And here, who Paul goes even deeper. He shows everyone else that, hey, in case there might be actually a few Gentile people who are standing there and thinking, oh, yes, Paul, get them. Get, get, get those Jews in case they're there and thinking that way. Paul comes back to an argument he's been making over and again. Everyone is on level footing before God. Flat ground. Verse 9 to verse 20. Everyone is on flat ground. And so Paul comes back to this, as I've just said. And there's a phrase that he uses in verse 9. Second point, if you are still following with me, flat ground. There's a phrase that he uses there in verse 9. Look at what it says. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Flat ground. At the beginning, a bit earlier in chapter 1, Paul has shown that everyone is on flat ground. In one sense, at at the creation, God makes everyone in his image. And so in one sense, humanity has the goodness of God because they're made in his image. But we know because of Genesis 3, that changes around. And from then on, Paul, Paul makes the argument that everyone is on flat ground after that. Because everyone lives as though they do not want God. And this is what he does here. He says, all are under sin. And this phrase, all are under sin, it's as though Paul personifies sin. He gives it a character. He personifies personifies sin. He personifies sin in one sense, if you can think about this, as a master, as a warden, or a predator. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that. A master. Think of a puppet. A master, you've got a puppet. Or you can think of a ventriloquist. One of my favorites is a guy called Jeff Dunham. The puppet moves depending on what Jeff Dunham does. Sin is the master. And this is what humanity does. Or sin is the warden. And humanity is the prisoner that finds themselves in the prison. Or third, sin is the predator that actually has sin, uh, that actually has us under its clutches. 
That's what sin does. If you remember the kind of language, actually, that is used in Genesis. The Bible says, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. And sin is waiting to pounce, like a predator. It's waiting to have you under its claws. We're meant to think that as you see that phrase. All are under sin. All are puppets of sin. All are prisoners of sin. And all are praise of sin. But as we read it, we shouldn't immediately think, oh, of course humanity is not involved. Of course we are just a victim in this case. That's not the case. See, what you find here is that humanity is not a silent partner in this argument. They're not. We're not a silent partner. We are a co-conspirator, just, like just like in Genesis in the garden. It's as though you find this puppet who is willing. Again, strange idea to see a puppet which is willing, which should make us think about sin in that way as well. Or you think of someone who just walks through a prison who sees that. Or think about an animal that is waiting and sees the lion with his teeth foaming at his mouth. Does the lion foam? But foaming at his mouth, waiting to pounce on the person. But they think, oh, man, it's just going to pet me. It's going to lick me. Very similar to a few people who go to Kruger National Park and decide to stick out a hand or a head. It's a predator. That's what sin does. And as humanity, even you go, as you go back to Genesis 3, you see the willingness of Adam and Eve to allow themselves to be under sin. Then they're willing to be under sin because they don't want to live under God. See, they want to decide how to live. And that's what all of humanity does. And Paul points out to us two ways in which we do that. In verse 13 to verse 18. Two ways. And these are two ways that you can see how all of humanity is unrighteous. Even the people in this church. Don't want to keep it general. I'll, keep a, I'll mention a few points that relate to this church so that we could see that. Two things that Paul says in this verse that shows how humanity is unrighteous, how you can see our unrighteousness and how we are not good. And here's the two things. You see it in our words and you see it in our actions. You see it in our words and you see it in our actions. The first one, you see it in our words, verse 13 to verse 14. Let me read it to you so that you would see that Paul there is is talking about our words. But I'll pick it up from verse 10, where Paul mentions a number of negative statements to show that no one stands right before God. As it is, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. And then from verse 13, he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp or snakes is, in, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I hope you notice that. Look at the passage again. Throat, tongues, lips, mouth. Metaphoric language, which is meant to point to Speech. Paul here quotes a number of passages in the Old Testament. He quotes a passage from Jeremiah and from the Psalms. But this language is meant to link you to speech. And notice the the, the kind of speech it is. Again, back to the passage. It is a speech that brings death or chaos. And I want you to see it. He says their throat is an open grave. Their tongues deceive. And then he continues. He says um, in their lips there is venom. You think of death once again there. And then he says, in their mouth there's curses and bitterness. So they use their words. People who are unrighteous use their words to bring death, which is quite different to what the word of God is. The oracles that are mentioned in verse 2 a bit earlier. See, the word of God brings life. 
And those that are part of his new humanity are meant to have words that are like this. And Black, not too long ago, took us through this in James, where he asked us, how do our words as the people who are part of God's new humanity look like? And Paul here wants to get this church to think about that. Do your words bring death or life? People who are unrighteous with words, their words bring death and chaos in the lives of others. And at this moment, I know we might be tempted to think of a politician. Of course, they bring death to the lives of others. They give people hopes. They never really live up to that. Death to people's hopes. You might think of that. But let me give you a few examples which I think actually show this. Think of what Paul has said in chapter 1, a little bit later to the end of it. Paul speaks about, in verse 30, those who are gossips and slanderers. Those who are gossips and slanderers are those who in their mouth have words of death. See, someone who gossips or slanders or assassinates the character of another person is in one sense bringing death to that person's character. The person is in one sense bringing death to relationships. could be in the church. I speak unkind about you. I say something unkind about you to someone else. You mess up relationships. But often we think, no, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. But Paul is clear, without the gospel, without God working in our lives, we, we are actually like that. Without the gospel working in our lives daily, we, we tend to move this way and speak unkind of people. Now, I like personal illustrations because I feel like, I feel like in one sense, one needs to be a little bit honest. I should have spoken to the person who's involved in this uh, before I say this. Uh, a while ago, I was sitting with someone, and we were talking about this. I don't think they will be offended because I was the one who was in the wrong in this. We're sitting and we're talking, and we're talking about someone who hasn't been in church in a while. And I mean, if you heard Black's sermon last week, Black was quite clear. If someone hasn't been in a church in a while, because we are those who are part of God's new humanity, we should be concerned to go out and rescue them and fetch them. We should, we should find out how they're doing. But I remember as we were sitting and having this conversation, um, and this person said, we haven't seen this, this person in a while, and I wonder why. And as we were talking, I remember saying something about how the person is dating and is in a relationship. And I was like, oh, I wonder if they're struggling with sin. And so that's why maybe they, they, tempt, they tempted to not come back to church. And at that moment, I was thinking, oh, look at how easy it is to do something like that. Now, the person who I said this to remembers it. And there's someone here in the room. They know that I said that. And as I was preparing this, I kept thinking, wait, do your words bring life, Reggie, or death? If you're part of God's new humanity, surely you can't be speaking like this about others. Surely this can't be what marks you out. But others are much more direct, really. Uh, but, but others are much more direct. They'll say something straight to your face. They won't say it to someone else. And so in this church, there are few people who are struggling with particular weaknesses. Their conscience is weak. If you think about speech in, in this one sense, you could imagine someone walking up to another person and saying, are you still struggling with that weakness or that sin? Come on. I mean, the passage in Romans does not really speak about it as being sin, but a weakness. But are you still struggling with that weakness? Now think about that. Do those kind of words bring life or death? Those who are part of God's new humanity speak differently because God's word brings life. But we need the gospel to help us to live in this way. Actions, 
Actions is verse, eight, verse 15 to verse 18. Let me read it fast. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their parts are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. The fear of the Lord, the fear of God, uh, the, there is no fear of God before their very eyes. Now, their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, you could take that literally to mean they're murderers. So you could say that. But it's worthwhile to think about where actually Paul takes this passage from. He quotes from Proverbs, but he also quotes from Isaiah. And in Isaiah 15, 59, there's something that happens there. Isaiah 59 talks particularly about actions of people, actions that lack generosity, actions that lack righteousness, that lack justice, that lack compassion. Now you can go and read Isaiah 59 for yourself to see this. In verse 8, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, and verse 15, over and again it keeps coming back to this idea of justice or goodness. Those who are the people of God, their actions are marked by that, by goodness and generosity. They're marked in this way. That's what they like, which is why Isaiah, or whoever wrote that part of Isaiah, in Isaiah 61 says, yeah, God sees all that you do. He sees all of these practices that you do, but he's not happy with them. He's not happy with them. That's not the kind of fasting or practices God requires. What he requires are actions of goodness and generosity, actions that show a concern for others, actions that bring life to the lives of others. And in this church, a bit later you realize that this church is split by this. The actions of the people in this church do not show that. Some have actually said that some of the Jews in this church are people who've just come back from wherever they were. And as soon as they've come back to Rome, there are people who've been struggling in one sense financially. And so they eat what is called um, leafy vegetables, as you see in chapter 14. And there, others have argued that when you read that passage, you're meant to see that what Paul is calling these people to is what he said in chapter 12, is to be hospitable and generous to one another. He actually says, share your resources with one another in chapter 12. See, the actions of those who are righteous are marked by that, generosity and goodness. But yet again, we don't often think of ourselves in this way. We think, oh, surely my actions show that I'm part of God's people. But I think a lot of the time, they don't. I think they don't show that we are part of the people of God. And I think this is because we build our identity in these two things that Paul has spoken about. I'm uncomfortable speaking unkind about someone because it makes me feel better about myself. I'm comfortable holding on to resources, what God has given me. I'm comfortable not having actions of generosity and goodness because I think, oh, surely there's something they've done to be where they find themselves. Surely they've done something to be where they are. God has blessed me. And so I can link my identity to these very things. And Paul wants to dismantle this false confidence. We all need the gospel, but not just the gospel to be saved. We need the gospel to live in a way that loves others. So as we sang earlier, we need the blood of the Lamb. And in our next point, which I said will be very brief, we will be quite brief with it, Actually, three lines, because it actually sets, up, uh, sets, us, sets us up for next week's talk. Next week's talk shows us that we need the gospel. And the reason why we need the gospel is because you and I are prisoners to sin. 
We're prisoners to evil. See, we do not just need God to take away his wrath or remove his justice, his just anger against us, but we need God to liberate us from sin. We need God to liberate us from evil so that we can begin to live in the way that he calls us to. So our last point, faithfulness. Throughout this whole passage, what you would have seen, despite the unfaithfulness of the people, God is still true. God is true. He's faithful. He's true to keep his word, to bless those who accept his promises, but to allow those who don't want to accept his promises to be as they are. And so in the next few verses we see from verse 21 onwards, as I said for next week, we see God's intention, which we have seen from Genesis, God's intention to bless humanity, to bring this life, a life that this new humanity is meant to take to the rest of the world. And here's the thing. Nothing humanity does will deter God from doing this. Nothing. The unfaithfulness of the the Israelites, yes, led to their judgment, but it did not stop God's plan to rescue humanity. Nothing they do would do would change that. Which is why I love the quote which you will see behind you from Doc Second. He says this, the gospel is God's mighty working. The gospel is the mighty working of God against the backdrop of human inability and even human rebellion. Let me read it again and wait for it to come up. The gospel is the mighty working of God against the backdrop of human inability and even human rebellion. See, that's the gospel. God will achieve his mission to rescue people for himself. And here's the thing, whether we decide to join him or not. Chapter 10 speaks of those whose feet are beautiful because they bring good news. But even if we decide not to join God, God will fulfill his mission. And as, as Paul writes this to this church that is in Rome, whom is asking for resources in order to get to Spain, at the very end he wants them to know. He wants them to join him in his mission. But even if they don't, that's not going to stop God's mission. Nothing will stop God from, from fulfilling his mission to rescue his people. And so it is just better for us to decide to join him in his story to rescue others. But to do that, we need to see that we need the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us to see how we are not so different to the Jews and Gentiles in this passage. Help us to see that we are those who have the privilege of having your word, the privilege of the mark of belonging to your family, baptism in this case, but we often don't live in that way. Would you help us to see that? So that we do not just think we need the gospel to be saved, but we realize we need, so that we realize we need the gospel to live for you. We need the gospel to help us to love you. We need the gospel to help us to love others. We need the gospel because without it, without your intervention, we are unable to live as you have called us to. All of us are unrighteous. So to help us to see this, so that we would embrace the good news that you have brought through Jesus. Father, we pray for any today who have not yet come to embrace these good news, that, Lord, they would turn to you so that on that very day when they stand before you, they would not face your judgment. 
Because on that day, you will, proven to be, you will be proven to be just. And their mouth will be stopped or silenced because they will see your justice. So we pray for them today and earnestly. And we pray for them because we have those kind of people in our family, amongst our friends and our colleagues. So our great desire is that as they hear these good news of the gospel, that they would see that and come to know you. But we pray that they would also see this gospel through how we live, through how we love one another, through our words, through our actions. May we be those who have the marks of your covenant family, those whom you have saved and redeemed from sin and evil. In Jesus' name, amen.